Amen. Good morning. All right. If you have a Bible, turn with me to the book of Romans, chapter 13. And this morning, as we are about ready to turn to Romans, chapter 13, uh, welcome to Regeneration. And uh, my name is Matt, and I'll be teaching through the book of Romans this morning in chapter 13. Uh, We have been going through the book of Romans now for uh, not quite a year, uh, almost a year. And uh, I don't know about you, but it's been a blessing for me. So uh, I've really been enjoying it. But I hope that um, in the book of Romans, if you're just catching it today, if you have missed up to this point, remember this, that we're, we're kind of reading it right in the middle of this place or towards the end of the letter where Paul has already laid this groundwork about our relationship with Christ, what God has done for us, who Christ is. He's talked about how he's chosen us, about his grace, about the character of God. And so chapter 13 on, and actually chapter 12 on, is just a response to what God has already done in us and through us. I wanted to make this uh, announcement as well. Um, I I just found this out, um, details about it forthcoming. But um, in the past, Santa Cruz County has done a thing called Serve the Bay. Different churches have done different projects. Some of you have done some of those things with us, whether it would be at De La Viega Park or uh, going out to uh, the wharf and kind of doing some painting out there. Well, um, the mayor has asked faith community people to get involved as well. It's called Make a Difference Day or Serve the Bay, and that is October 24th. So um, because it's kind of late in the game where they kind of asked us to do that, if you uh, have something that is on your heart to serve in a, a specific way, then uh, let us know. We're, we're praying about how to do that and, and what to do and joining with other people just to reach out and to be a part of what is happening in our area. And really, our heart is to share the gospel, not only by our words, but by our actions. But that leads me to something. This question, because we are in Romans 13, is... So the mayor is saying, hey, we would love to have faith community involved and different people involved. And, and one of the questions is, how do you feel about the government? Okay. Now, don't, don't all answer out loud, all right? Because there's a lot, of different, uh, a lot of different feelings. Maybe you're a government worker. You might be a teacher. You might be a, some, a social worker, someone that's hired by a, a local government or even broader than that. You might work for the IRS. In, in that case, you probably don't tell a lot of people, you know, when you meet them, the first thing is, yeah, I work for the IRS. Um, but some people have this feeling about government generally. And the feeling is stick it to the man. You know, the man being government, the man being authority, those that are in control, and like whatever you can do to just like come up against government and to, to just kind of be on your own. Maybe you have that independent kind of free spirit and and at the root of it there's some rebellion in us right where we don't like anyone to tell us what to do uh when i was growing up i remember my mom would always tell me matt take out the trash take out the trash and if i was planning to take out the trash that day and in my mind i'm thinking okay i'm gonna take out the trash but my mom would say matt take out the trash for some reason i don't want to take out the trash you know because she asked me to take out the trash and sometimes we think of government in that way or maybe you're uh, like my my mom, uh, who has this idea that you never say anything bad about anyone that is in any political position. Um, I remember growing up, we would talk about presidents or debates or different people that are running for office, and she she would never 
allow me in her presence to talk negatively about politicians. And I'd be like, mom, can't you see this guy's a liar? Look at all these things he's doing. And she'd say, oh no, no, don't talk like that. He's the president. And that was kind of my mom's mindset. It's always been that even if she felt like what he was doing was wrong, or maybe you're somewhere in between. So on Tuesday night, we are going through Romans 13 with a, um, a, a group of people that um, on Tuesdays, we just study whatever chapter that I'm going to teach on on Sunday. And it's really helpful to me. There's a lot of interaction, a lot of discussion. And I'll tell you that this was one of the hardest passages to get through is Romans 13. And one of the reasons is because of what it says. You know, we're doing observation, interpretation, application, and, and we try not to get ahead of ourselves. Observation is just looking at the text and what does the text say? And then later on, it's what does it mean? And then how does it apply? And we couldn't even get through observation because we got stuck on this and read this with me in Romans 13. Just these first couple of verses, let every soul be subject to the governing authorities for there is no authority except from God and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God. And those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. I mean, we just read that. And it was like we couldn't get past that. And, and one of the, the guys that was with us is just mad. He's like, he's, he's arguing with me. I'm like, hey, I didn't, I didn't write it. You know, it's, just, it, it's in here. And it's just kind of like, this is, this is garbage. What does this mean? This gar- All authority, you know, is there that exists. It's appointed by God. What about this authority or that, you know? And then starting to go into personal experience and then history i'm like well, hold on let's just do observation let's just let's read the text and see what the text says so we start to read in verse two therefore whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of god those who resist will bring judgment no i can't read what is that you know and 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 uh so when you read this i think it's important that we allow the word of god to speak and instead of just being so frustrated with it um to understand that there is a really hard, it is very difficult, not only for us, but I think that when we read it in that way, we kind of get an understanding of what the Roman Christians felt like when they were reading this letter from Paul. So if we feel this way in, in a place where I'm, I mean, it could happen, but I'm not worried. I'm not worried about anyone coming in and saying, we're going to shut this down, you know, tear out the microphone, tear out the speech. It, it could happen. But I'm not worried about that. In the culture, in the time in which Paul was writing, that was something that was very real that they had to be worried about. So our guttural response and reaction to this is probably what their response would have been as well. That's why it's so important in context. Paul didn't begin the the letter of Romans with chapter 13, right? He's like chapters 1 through 11. This is, this is because of God's authority, because of God's mercy, because of what God has done, because of how God is gracious to us, because how God doesn't treat us as we deserve, because God is merciful and doesn't give us what we do deserve. Because of all this, then chapter 12, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies this living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is rational. It's your reasonable service. This is how we should worship because of what God has done. So again, if we just pick up in chapter 13 without the context of the rest of it, it doesn't make sense. And I wanna tell you in the context of the rest of it, it is still 
challenging. Because when we think about Paul writing to the Christians in Rome, um, these Jews that were expelled from Rome have recently, by the time they get this letter, have been allowed to come back under this emperor. But we also realize that Nero is the emperor that is going to uh, just really raise the persecution level in the church. Just an evil, incredible, wicked, wicked man. And Paul is writing to the Romans, not only in response to what they've been through, but also, I believe, prophetically to what they're about to go through. And I think maybe the Lord would speak to us prophetically this morning about things that we might experience and how to be ready for it ahead of time. Because I don't know what's going to happen in the future. When you think about the United States, we are such a young country, relatively speaking, compared to history. I mean, we think, wow, we've been around for a long time, but, but we're only 240-something years old. It's not a lot of time. We don't know what's going to happen because America is not mentioned in biblical prophecy. So Paul writing to Rome is, first of all, beginning with this uh, a Christian's response to government in this chapter. So let every soul be subject to these governing authorities. There is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. So to be subject to government means to put yourself under submission to the authorities continually. Now here's a question, why? Why would we do that? Why would we willingly submit ourselves under this authority of government? And the reason, first of all, is because you're a follower of Christ. As a follower of Christ, Paul is writing primarily to these Christians that are in Rome. Now, if I'm not a Christian, if I don't even believe that God is real, and, and if it's just up to me, I'll tell you, I would live my life a lot differently. I'm not going to tell you how, but I would live my life a lot differently, especially when it comes to authority. I, I would just have this different mindset uh, of authority. And, and I know myself well enough um, to I remember... The, the movie Red Dawn, not the current one, but the first one that came out in the 1980s and watching Red Dawn and just saying, yeah, Wolverines, you know, like oh, I'm one of those, you know, and, and man, if anyone ever comes against just reading 1984, George Orwell's 1984, and I'm reading this book with anger. I'm reading it saying, no one's going to tell me what to do, and I don't care what they do. I'm going to keep my American individualistic, a fight for my rights, and I'm going to do what I'm going to do mindset. Now, again, I'm not anti-American at all. Um, I'll tell you, I, I love Rocky against Drago just like anyone else, you know. Uh, when he fought against the Russians, hey, you know, I'm, there's a patriotism that, that I think that when, when I read scripture, that we should have a love of our, our countrymen, a love of our people, a love of our, our nationality, a love of our heritage, not an arrogance of being better than other people, not an arrogance, and, and also not a deception to say whatever our government says, then that's it, that's right, that's good. But we should have a love of our nation, a love of our country. So the question is, how can this be in the Bible? How can Paul write this to these Christians in Rome that are about ready to be fed to lions, that some of these Christians literally are going to be um, dipped into wax, hot melted wax and set on fire and mocked at, here's the light of the world. How can Paul write this? And so when we read this, if we take this text 
at face value, then yeah, obviously it is going to be disturbing. So if there is no authority except from God, then that means not only our current president, Barack Obama, past presidents of like Abraham Lincoln, but also like in Iran, the supreme leader, Ayatollah Ali Khamenei. I don't know if you know this, but just this month, this is what he said. He said, Israel will not exist in 25 years. Here's one of his remarks. I'd like to say to Israel that they will not see the end of these 25 years. Khamenei said, God willing, this is Khamenei, he said, there will be no such thing as a Zionist regime in 25 years. Until then, struggling, heroic, and jihadi morale will leave no moment of peace or serenity for the Zionists. So you read something like that and you think, man, there's a hatred towards Israel. He went on to say this, those who are in Iran who insist to dress the great Satan America in costumes and painted as an angel. We've expelled the Satan, the United States, out the door and it is forbidden for us to permit him to enter through the window. So he calls us the great Satan. This is very intense. Now, this is not against all, um, you know, uh, all Persian people because God loves, for God so loved the world. This is a government leader though. And this is one of the authorities that is in place in our world at this time. And when I read this scripture, I'm challenged to think, how can God allow this guy to be an authority? You know, you talk to Theo and Rebecca about El Salvador and the things that are going on over there. And, and you, you look at a place like Juarez, Mexico. And you go like, how, how does this happen? How is it like this evil just kind of comes in? Or, or my daughter right now in dealing with corruption in some of the parts of the government in the Philippines in which they turned a blind eye towards sex trafficking because they're getting kickbacks from some of the perpetrators. So we look at our world today. These are government officials. These are people that are in place. And I hope that you get angry at times when you read stuff like that and you hear what's going on around this world. Because if we don't, then you know what we're doing? We're not really caring about the rest of the world. We're just saying like everything is okay. It's fine for me as long as they're not coming for me. And you know what, that's what happened right before the Nazis came and they took the Jews to the Holocaust is that they had people, even pastors saying, it's okay, you know, they came for them, they came for those people, but they haven't come for me. But one of the pastors said, when they came for me, who was left to speak for me? The reason why I share this is because in spite of all of this history and in spite of what is happening in our world today, this verse actually gives me hope. And let me tell you why it gives me hope. It gives me hope because even though these authorities that are there in the world are evil at times, do you know who's still in control? God's still in control. So this, rather than reading this and making me throw my hands up and just saying, forget it then, you know, everything is out of control. It actually gives me some hope to realize God is still in control. And even if the people that you vote for don't win, God is still in control. And even when it seems like someone is, is winning in this battle of evil and oppression, to know that God is in control gives me hope. As we continue on, we realize that God is on the throne. Um, understand he's not taken by surprise by our elections. He's not taken by surprise with the government around the world, whether city council or the traffic police or the IRS, God ultimately is in control. In fact, 
Jesus went through this himself. He doesn't, Paul doesn't tell us something that, that he is apart from the, the struggles we go through. And Jesus doesn't expect us to live according to these laws and principles as though Jesus didn't uh, follow the same laws and principles. Listen to this in John chapter 19. The Jews answered, said, we have a law. And according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. So the Jewish leaders come to this man, this governor named Pontius Pilate. And they're saying, we have a law. And this man, Jesus, should die. He made himself to be the son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again, and he said to Jesus, where are you from? And Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, you won't speak to me? Do you not know? And this is Pilate speaking to Jesus. Do you not know that I have authority to release you? And I have the authority to crucify you. And Jesus answered to Pilate, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. You, when you read the account of Jesus being put on trial by Pilate, you find out very quickly that Pilate is shaking in his sandals because he realizes uh, he's not the one on trial. I'm the one on trial. And when Jesus says to him, you have no authority unless it's been given over to you unless it has been handed down, Jesus is not helpless. He willingly laid his life down. At any point in time, he could have called for the legion of, of angels. They could have wiped them out. One angel could have wiped them all out. And so when I read this, it helps me to understand in verse two, Paul says, therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God. And those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. So don't move to Idaho and dig a well and make your property a fortress and stop paying your taxes and build up your arsenal, right? Now, if you move to Idaho, praise God, I'm not against Idaho. Um, but I'll tell you that there are things that you and I don't agree with within our government. I, I agree with that. But relatively speaking, it's still a great government compared to much of the world. I mean, we, we could argue, we could say, hey, there are things that are wrong. And I know that there are things that are wrong. But look around the, the rest of the world. And it is, it is crazy. Do we have corruption? Yes. But compared to the rest of the world, we're, we're still pretty good. Not compared to God's kingdom. Not compared to God's rule. But compared to the rest of the, the world. So, again, I believe that as Christians, we, we should be people that... Um, in a sense, the government doesn't have to worry about us breaking all of the laws and going against um, just all of the, the laws of government. In fact, we should, be, we should love our country. We should love our, our, our people. Now, we'll get into limitations of this later, but Paul doesn't list the limitations here because this isn't his focus. You know what his focus is? His focus, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is he wants us to know that when we resist the authority that God places over us, we resist God's ordained order. In fact, if I want to say, well, I'm, I'm going to fight against this order and this authority, then really I don't have a leg to stand on when I tell my kids, you need to obey me. Because when I tell my kids, you need to obey me, one of the things that I tell them is that because I'm your dad, you know, because I pay bills, because you're going to get a spanking, because you'll get restriction, because, but I'll tell you, greater than all of those things is this. 
because God ultimately is the authority. And when you rebel against my authority, ultimately you're rebelling against God's authority. You don't want to rebel against God's authority because it will go very, it'll, it'll go really hard for you. That's a very difficult thing. So government is one of God's provisions, one of his arrangements to help govern our sinful fallenness. Government wasn't set up in the garden. Jesus didn't set everything up before the fall. In our fallenness, government is absolutely necessary. And as much as we could dislike things about government, I'll tell you, I still want to be able to call 911. I still want to be able to call the police when there is someone that is doing something illegal that is going to harm me. And if there were no government, just imagine what our world would be like. I mean, even bad governments. Uh, I, I saw this interview, um, this interview um, talking about, it was in the home, hometown of, I'm drawing a blank, the Mexican drug lord that is like, El, El Chapo, that's, yeah. So there was a documentary. This lady came into his hometown, was interviewing people, and it was really scary because all of a sudden these ATVs come out of the forest and the jungle, and they, they tell her, you know, you need to leave here. Or, and, but in that city, you know, the, the most wanted drug lord in the world, they're asking people about the government, and these store owners and these farmers are saying, well, it, it's kind of like, you know, I don't want to go on film, I don't want to say, but the difficulty is I don't know which is better, our government where we are or, or El Chapo. And regardless of what your opinion is, their opinion in that city is that, yeah, government, there's some bad things. But then they said, but the government also does some good things. But imagine if there's just total lawlessness. God set this government up as one of the provisions to, in a sense, govern our sin. In fact, it's one of the primary, and the primary um, purpose of government is so that in our sin, we just don't go crazy, that there's some accountability. It says in verse three, for rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you wanna be unafraid of the authority? Then do what is good and you'll have praise from the same. In other words, you don't have anything to be afraid of if you aren't doing anything wrong. Here's a feeling uh, that I get. Sometimes I'm driving, I'm lost in thought, or I'm singing really loudly in my car, and I'm just like oblivious to everything until I come right past a, uh, you know, like a overpass, and I, I pass it, and I see that black and white vehicle, and the first thing that I do is I scan down to my speedometer, because I want to know how fast I'm going, and if I'm right around the speed limit, maybe a couple miles above it, or right at it, or a little below it, all of a sudden... No fear. Hello, Mr. Officer. Wave and just feel absolutely fine. But I'll tell you that if you pass one of those cars and you check down and you realize, oh, I'm 10 miles per hour above that limit, all of a sudden your heart starts beating and you, you let your foot off the accelerator. You don't hit the brake light, but you let it off the accelerator and then you're just looking in the mirror and you're afraid. And what, what Paul is saying is, hey, if you don't want that chariot to pull you over, you know, then just obey the laws of the land. Now, we will get into limitations again later, but the, the focus right here is, is on Paul writing to these Romans saying, hey, the way to win the people in Rome is not to try to rebel and to fight against all of these authorities. 
It's not the way that, that we're going to do things. In fact, when you think about the church location, our church being right here on Green Hills Road, and I, I love the way that it's set up, the, the redwood trees and everything, but one of the reasons why we're here is because of the lack of being able to get a facility use permit in the city of Santa Cruz because the church started off in Santa Cruz. Now, in the midst of it, there was legal, um, you know, the elders and pastors, you know, you could talk to all of the guys that have been here longer than I've been here. They went through all those channels and then they even said, you know, what are our options? And there were people that were saying, well, you could actually sue. And the heart behind it was this. We're trying to reach the city. We probably shouldn't sue the city. If we're, if we're trying to reach out to the city, we probably... Now, I'm not saying that there aren't situations and cases where things like that might happen. But Paul is writing to the Christians in Rome under this context of saying, hey, God has set these things up. And know this, even if things get crazy for you here in Rome, I want you to have this comfort. God wants you to have this comfort. He is still in control. God is still in authority. And when you read all the way through the Old Testament, you realize that there's a guy named Cyrus that comes up. And Cyrus is a, a king of a foreign country, and God calls Cyrus his servant. Nebuchadnezzar, who was absolutely wicked and rebelled and, and actually came up against the, the Jews that were there in, in Jerusalem and took them away captive, that he was God's servant. Realize that Pharaoh, who hardened his own heart against God, and then God hardened his own, uh, God hardened Pharaoh's heart, that he was God's instrument to take God's people out of Egypt. That even though these world leaders and these government authorities might do evil, and that is their choice, and they are still accountable, God ultimately is in control and can even use a bad government and can even use evil to use for his purposes. And I take much comfort in that. I take much solace in the fact that God is still in control. Even when you think about the evil and the atrocities of Hitler, do you know what God used that evil for? And, and I'm not saying that God caused Hitler to do this evil, but you know what God used that evil for? It was one of the ways that Israel became a nation again in 1948. God used that evil and that atrocity for the world to put their eyes on the, the disparity and the evil against Jews and for them to eventually become a nation. So you see that God is still working even in our world. Therefore, in verse 5, again, the word therefore reminds us of what has been said up to this point. Therefore, you must be subject, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. Now, just in case... You're like me, and uh, maybe you've thought this, and Paul thinks these Romans might think this way. Maybe you're thinking, but what if I don't get caught? Okay, what if, what if I don't get caught speeding? Paul is saying, not only for wrath, but also for conscience sake. What if you could get away with not paying your taxes? Now, under our tax system, um, my wife is a CPA, so believe me, I understand taxes are, are crazy. They're every, there's so many laws for individuals, for corporations, nonprofits, businesses, depends on where you live in the county. All of the tax code is, is crazy. But 
even though you could say, okay, here's deductions and here's something I could do, we're still called to pay taxes. Now, if you could find um, a provision in which you don't have to pay taxes because there's some stipulation, then by all means, use it. But what Paul is saying is that, hey, this is an important thing to be subject, not only for wrath, but also for conscience sake. Insider trading, maybe your company, you know, you know what's going to happen in your stock. And so you can't do this because you're too close to it, but then you let your friend know, hey, you know what, you should really sell the stock in my company right now because there's some bad things. That's called insider trading. And by the way, that's illegal. And in that, we can think, well, what if I don't get caught? And the Lord wants us to know it's also for conscience sake. It's not just about whether or not you get caught. What about downloading movies and music without paying for the software or, or paying for those things? Oh, it's not hurting anyone. Well, whether it's hurting anyone or maybe it's hurting, you're saying it's hurting me, it's hurting my pocketbook, you know, and if I pay, then it makes that company that's already billions of dollars that much wealthier and they're a bad company anyway. God's saying that is out of your hands. You're to obey the laws of the land because you're not the final authority. You're not the final judge. So in verse six, for because of this, you also pay taxes for they are God's ministers attending continually to this very thing. Render, therefore, to all their due, taxes to whom taxes are due, customs to whom customs, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. So even God is, is explaining these things. He's, he wants us to know. Peter wrote this in 1 Peter 2.17. He said, honor all people. So honor to whom honor is due. Does that mean, wow, if someone is like, hey, CEO of a company, president, Famous person, powerful, I'm going to give them honor. But this guy, he's lower than me, so no honor to that guy. No, you know what he's saying? Honor people. Give people honor. Elevate those people in treating them as people who are also created in the image of God. That's how we should treat all people. Uh, again, First Peter 2.17, honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Listen to that, fear God, honor the king. Fear to whom fear is due, we're to fear no man in the sense of my homage and my worship and my ultimate reverence and respect should not be towards a person. In fact, the fear of man in the Bible is a snare. It's a trap. When we're so afraid of authorities or we're so afraid of what people might think or we're so afraid of our status or our position, above and beyond what God thinks then that is wrong because God wants us to fear him. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And so if I want to be a wise person, I need to have that fear and that reverence and that honor towards God. So here are the, the thing, you know, you're thinking, okay, but I, I don't get it. You know, how, how is that possible? Here's a question. Who is the king of kings? Jesus is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Paul, who is writing to the Romans, has actually disobeyed chapter 13, verses 1 and 2 at times, um, or the apostles have when they have been put in jail because they were put in prison for preaching the gospel. Remember Peter in, in the book of Acts and the other apostles, they were commanded no longer to speak in this name. And they said, hey, you be the judge, you're the judge, but we're going to keep on speaking in this name. You know, we're going to keep on doing. What we're... So what happens 
when the authorities and the laws of the land contradict the authority and the laws of God's kingdom. When you have that kingdom in conflict, then you must make the decision who is king. Who is king and who is Lord? Jesus is king of kings and Lord of lords. Which means that there may be religious persecution. Which means that in other nations right now, which means Christians are beheaded at times because of their faith, because of their um, lordship that Jesus is king. Paul is going to be martyred because of this very thing. Peter is going to be crucified upside down. There are going to be countless, not only in church history, but even today, martyrs. And times that persecution will come because we're forbidden to do certain things or we're made to do other things. Now, there might be laws that are bad and there might be things that you think, hey, I don't agree within the government, but, but understand this. Only if you are being caused, uh, mandated to, to break God's laws and to go against God's laws, then there's a higher law. If you read in Hebrews chapter 11, um, some of the people that are exalted as having much faith and, and really are, are being praised by God, one of the people is a lady named Rahab. And if you know that Rahab uh, was a, a prostitute and the Jewish spies came into her place and she hid them. And she lied. She said, oh, they went that way. You know, <laughs> no, okay, you know and they all, they'll go that way. And then she tells you know, these spies, make sure that my family is safe. And they tell her, hey, hang this scarlet thread out your window so that when we come in and we invade the city and there, there's a fight that we know that everyone that's in this home because of that scarlet thread is going to be saved. And, and Rahab is exalted as a woman of great faith. The Hebrew midwives that Pharaoh said every time one of those um, Hebrew women has a child and it's a boy, then I want you to kill that baby. Don't let that baby live. The Hebrew midwives that hid the the babies are exalted and lifted up in God's eyes and they disobeyed the authority of the government that was in place at that time. So it's not a blanket statement, but the shock that we feel in reading it, I think it's important because Paul was writing to the Romans and it is something where, where he, Paul doesn't go into all these stipulations in this chapter. Why? Because I think we already know all the stipulations. We know all the reasons why we shouldn't. And Paul's telling us the, what the focus on is this is why we should because God ultimately is in authority. Now, in understanding that Jesus is the king of kings and we have to answer that question, um, maybe you will be placed in a situation in which I, I'm sure some of you here have been in these situations. I know I have before I was working um, you know, before I was in full-time ministry, there were times when I would be placed in a compromising situation by an authority, a boss wanting me to lie or um, someone wanting me to do something that, that was illegal and, and at the same time, they would, in their eyes, it's not that bad. It's not really a, a bad thing. And you have to decide, and here's where the challenge is. The challenge really comes when you face that question, who's king? Is Jesus really king of my life? Is he really the one that ultimately is in authority? Because you'll be placed in those situations, I believe, more and more. So, 
we do have a debt says to give those, you know, honor to whom honor, customs to whom customs. And then in verse eight, he says, oh, no one, anything except what? To love one another. For he who loves another has fulfilled the law. So we should pay customs and taxes and, and uh, we, we shouldn't owe except to love one another. Now, this is not a prohibition against borrowing at all. It is a, ca- a caution throughout scripture against debt. Hudson Taylor took this literally as, I will not do anything ever to go in debt. I will not owe anyone anything at any time. And that's a, if that's your conviction, that's a good thing to live by. But if you buy a house and there's a mortgage, I mean, what is more wise as a steward to rent at times or to buy? For us as a family, when we were looking for a place, you know, a couple of years ago here anywhere in Santa Cruz County, what we realized is the place that we bought was actually cheaper than renting anywhere that could have a family of seven. And we understood with the write-offs and the things that would work out, you know, in our, in our park, we understood this is the wisest thing we could do in stewardship for us at the time. So do we have a mortgage? Yeah. Do we owe? Absolutely. <laughs> and if we don't, we don't pay back, what will happen? There's a repossession that will happen. You know, there's an eviction that will, will happen. But the focus is not a, a prohibition as much as this is a positive command. You will always and I will always be in debt to love. We will always be in debt to love. Remember, he, I mean, uh, Romans 12, 1 and 2, I beg of you to come alongside of me because of the mercies of God. Remember verse 2, and you know, what is your rational or reasonable service or worship? What's reasonable to give to the one that has given you all? You know what God wants from us more than anything? He wants our love. He wants us not only to receive his love, but he wants us to love him back. And we will never, we will never pay that off. We will never love God so much in obedience and doing things for him and loving our neighbor that we say, hey, I paid off my debt, God. You know, I'm so glad I paid it off young because now I could be selfish for the rest of my life and do whatever I want because I paid off that debt. No, it is a debt that we will continue to pay. Robertson McQuilkin, who was the, the president of Columbia Bible College and Seminary, I love this, had such a, one of his books, um, Understanding and Interpreting the Bible, is one of my favorite books of any book as far as understanding how to interpret scripture. And as the president of this Bible college and seminary, um, his wife um, contracted Alzheimer's disease. And when she started losing her memory and being able to function, um, he called all of the, the regents together and the board and all of the professors, all of the leaders of the university. He had a conference and, and people were wondering what he was going to say. Is he going to start um, you know, doing less at the Bible college? Is, is he going to try to maintain his role as the president and also care for his wife? And this is what he said. He said, I want you to know that I have made very, very difficult decisions in life and in ministry. And I've been faced with many of them over the years. This one is the easiest. And if I take care of my wife from now until the day that I die, and I feed her, and I clothe her, and I take care of her in her condition, I will never be able to scratch the surface of how much love she has given to me over the years. He said, so I gladly submit my resignation. That's a debt of love, and this is what Paul is saying. He's saying, oh, no one anything except to love one another. 
And we're to love in that way because that debt of love is something because God has first loved us that we're to love him and to love others. In verse nine, remember these commandments, by the way, of loving God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength and loving your neighbor as yourself. Remember, Jesus talked about those being linked. He says, for the commandments, you shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not covet. And if there's any other commandment, all of the other ones, they're all summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So you don't do these things. You don't commit adultery and murder and bear false witness and gossip and covet. You don't do these things when you do this thing. When you are loving your neighbor as yourself, you're not doing those other things because love will cover all of those other things. And by the way, he says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. It's not a generic person, it's your neighbor. Remember, Jesus taught us about this. Who is your neighbor? In the parable of the Good Samaritan. Your neighbor is not just like your friend. It's not just your buddy. Remember that in the parable of the Good Samaritan, it was the Samaritan that actually helped when, you know, this priest and this these people are going the opposite way. Our neighbor, those are the people that we are in proximity with. You come across someone that is in need. You know someone, a neighbor in your neighborhood, a person you go to school with, someone at work, a friend, an acquaintance, someone that you just come in contact with, the people that are sitting around you. Those are, you are, we're all neighbors. Verse 10, love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. If you do this, You'll not only fulfill the laws of the land, but you'll fulfill the law of God. And again, when those contradict, you have to ask, who is king? Now, I want to close with this, this wake-up call. Because as Paul is writing, I, I just look at verses 11 through 14 as Paul kind of getting into it. If Paul is preaching, this is, if he were um, an African-American Southern Baptist preacher, this is where he gets real loud. This is where Paul is asking for the amens. This is where Paul, he just gets, you just get filled with the spirit and just passionate about what he's saying. And as he's writing this in verse 11 through 14, he says, and this do knowing the time that now is high time to awake out of sleep. For now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness. Let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and in drunkenness, not in lewdness and in lust, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. Amen. Paul's urgency. Um, Peter said it this way. I mean, Jesus talked about it with urgency. All of the apostles talked about the imminent return of Christ with urgency. Listen to what Peter said. Peter wrote in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 2 through 9. He wrote that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior, knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. He goes on to say this, but beloved, do not forget this one thing that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise as some count slackness or slowness, 
But he is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. When we read Paul, we can't read Paul without realizing that he had a sense of urgency. Paul believed that Christ would come back during his lifetime. When Paul wrote to the Corinthians, he said, you guys don't even have time to buy and sell property or probably to get married. So you should just stay as you are because Jesus is coming back. Now, for 2,000 years, people have been saying Jesus is coming back. And Peter says that in the last days, there's going to be scoffers that will say, oh, you know, they're going to do whatever they want to do because they're going to say, where's the promise of his coming? But I want to ask you, what was the fruit of Paul's life of urgency? What was the fruit of that? Much of the New Testament, traveling throughout Asia Minor and Europe, planting churches, establishing elders. What was the fruit of it? The fruit of it is what we're doing here right now is still some of that fruit. We're reading this letter that Paul wrote to the Romans. So when we have that mindset, and the only mindset that makes sense in all of Scripture, whether, you know, I'm not today going to go in depth about, you know, pre-tribulation and post-tribulation, what all those things are, but let me explain this, that the only thing that makes sense throughout Scripture is this imminent return of the Lord that we don't know and we should be ready and we should, not only for ourselves, like, hey, I'm good, all right, I, I, I know the Lord, you know, I'm born again, but we should be doing the things that God has called us to do. We should be busy about the Lord's work. There should be an urgency. Because let me tell you this, it doesn't matter how, you know, it doesn't matter how long it takes for Jesus to, to return or for the rapture to happen. You know, in my life, he's gonna come back in 60 years. <laughs> Either he's gonna come back for me or I'm gonna go to him. But I got an appointment. And in that appointment, um, I don't have a lot of time. And 60 years is super generous if I live to my hundreds, okay? So what I'm saying is this. We all have an appointed time and life, it's, it's short. The older you get, isn't life going faster? I mean, 2015, I mean, come on. You just think about how quickly life goes by. And yet, Paul is trying to tell us this, quit hitting the snooze. Would you just quit hitting the snooze when it comes to your relationship with God and what he has called you to do? And Paul is saying, it, it's time for us to wake up. In 1987, there was a man named Alan Bloom. Some of you may have read this book. It was a, a number one bestseller. Uh, I read it in college. It was called The Closing of the American Mind. How many of you have read or heard of that book? All right, some of you have. Let me explain just real briefly The Closing of the American Mind. Alan Br Bloom wrote in 1987, what is happening is that we are given so many options and so many worldviews and so many things to think. And the one mantra of the day, and this is going back to 1987, he said the one mantra of the day is relativism. It's this, whatever you think, we should, exp we should explore every opinion. We should explore every philosophy. We should look at what other people around the world think and we should consider all of these things. But then... In our educational system in universities, he was saying, but what they're teaching our young college students is this, explore all of the options, but there is no option that is any better than any other option. Therefore, all philosophies are to be held in equality. 
And he called it the closing of the American mind because he said it is very obvious that when you study philosophies and governments and policies that there are going to be some that are better than others. And you should be able to choose those things without saying in relativism and in this. And he wrote in 1987 about tolerance. The word tolerance, the definition was changing. Tolerance, as Christians, we should, be, we should be known for our tolerance. Love is patient. We should be tolerant of all people and love people. I mean, if someone has a differing view from me, I'm very tolerant. I don't beat them up and put them in a headlock and say, you better say what I say and think what I think. I'm very tolerant. I'm, I'm tolerant of people that, that disagree with me all the time. But tolerance does not mean that what another person thinks is equal and on the same level of what I think and say, okay, then I accept that is equal to, to what I think. In this mindset of tolerance that goes out, it's this mindset that, hey, those people that believe in those philosophies or those things, you know, that's just, that's great for them because it's working out for them. And my question goes back to who is king? When Jesus says, no one comes to the Father except by me. When Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, he became, uh, that road got very, very narrow. It, it, it got so narrow that it went through one person. It went through Christ. The road to the Father is that narrow, and few find it. The road to destruction is very broad. So therefore, if I see a person going towards destruction, and they're going into this broad path, and I know the truth, is that loving for me not to tell them? No, you know what it is? It's cowardly or unloving. It's either cowardly because I'm afraid about what they're th gonna think about me or it's unloving because I don't care enough about them to tell them. And Paul is telling us through the Holy Spirit in the book of Romans chapter 13 to wake up. He's telling us to wake up. Let me tell you what, what causes us to sleep. Number one thing I believe that causes us to sleep, it's a physical thing when it happens in a physical realm what causes me to hit my snooze? What causes you to hit your snooze? These covers are so warm. I am so comfortable. And out there, it is so cold and bright. And I don't want to deal with, I know what today holds. I want to stay right here in my bed. I want to stay right here where it's comfortable. I don't want to deal with these problems. I don't want to deal with this thing. I just want to stay nice and cozy and comfortable and warm. And I want to say that for us spiritually, it is the same thing. In our culture especially, it's just the desire to be comfortable. The desire, hey, I have a, a nice thermostat, and I set it according to what I want. It's at 68. You know, some people higher, some people lower. And, uh, I mean, you could go to extremes, can't you, for comfort. Heated floors, and then the seat warmers in the car. You know, have, you have your driver setting, and you, you hit the button, everything's comfortable. But we could go through so much of that that spiritually, hey, I know that there's a, a need to minister to someone, but you know what? That day is my free day. Or you know what? I, I know I could help out this person or this ministry, but then all these things that I'm, sa I'm saving up to buy this comfortable massage chair, you know? And I could help them, but this massage chair, if I, I don't know, it, and, and honestly, that's, that's what we go through. It is one of the most difficult things as a pastor in the United States to deal with that. In my own life, I have to, I have to guard against that. And in the lives of the people of the body of Christ. 
I mean, as hard as things get for us and as difficult, and you might think, hey, uh, really, if you go outside of our borders, you realize we're, we're pretty we're pretty stinking comfortable. And uh, we, we have some really nice beds. My, my bed has memory foam. I love it. I just sink into it. And, it just, I, <laughs> and it's easy. And it's easy to do that spiritually. Entertainment, it lulls us to sleep. Lulls us to sleep. Um, it was Karl Marx that said religion is the opiate of, of the people. But I would say that it's entertainment. I, I would say that it's the word of God and the Holy Spirit that is the alarm, that sound, that wakes us up to remind us that God is up to something. Remember, the night is far spent, the day is at hand. So therefore, cast off the deeds of darkness. You gotta put some things off before you put them on. You know, you, you, after a football game, you know, when my son, he, uh, during practice, before they had their lockers in the summer, I would not let him get in the car with his pads. Like those go right in the trunk. Okay, you don't even, you don't enter into the cab of the truck. You, you throw all that stuff in the back. You got to take some stuff off. And spiritually, we have to take these things off. Revelry, drunkenness, lewdness, lust, strife, envy. Revelry, by the way, interesting word. It was in honor of the God of Bacchus, which is the God of partying, basically, of sing and play and eating. It, it's just, those things can put us to sleep. And I close with, put on the Lord Jesus Christ, make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. Do you know why? Because Jesus said this in the last days, because sin is increased, most people's love will grow cold. And the more that I give in to sin and compromise, the more that my love for Jesus gets really, really faint. The more that instead of being on fire for the Lord, it drifts towards being lukewarm. And this morning, may the Holy Spirit speak to each one of us and challenge us. We owe a debt of love. And that debt of love is not neutral. It is active. It is something that says, God, help me to love you back and show me how to love you and show me how to love these people all around me. And by the way, on the way over here, my daughter and I, we were just looking at different people. We're praying and praying. I said, Ellie, let's pray for... There's a guy walking across the street with his dog. Lord, I pray for that guy with his dog. Pray for these cars that are by him. Pray. Lord, would you help open up our minds to see people that are around us? Because, um, man, we have been, as a, as a culture, uh, we, we could easily hit the snooze. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you for your word this morning. And Lord, I, I pray that the tone of it would not be misinterpreted as anything but loving and urgent. I pray, Lord, that in the same way that it must have shocked the system for the Roman Christians to read this letter, that, Lord, it would shock us, that it, in a sense it would be like a splash of cold water on our lethargic, sleepy spirituality. That, Lord, your word would quicken our hearts to see the urgency and the need. And, Lord, whether you come back today, which, Lord, that would be wonderful, and yet, Lord, we want to thank you that you didn't come back before we came to know you. So God, I pray that you would give us that heart of love. Lord, remind us of this debt, this debt that we cannot pay. We thank you for Christ coming to pay the penalty for our sin, to pay that debt for us. But now, Lord, that debt of love, to love you and to love others, that is on us. And God, it's a debt that we willingly 
and gladly welcome because of what comes with that debt. Father, I want to thank you that what comes with that debt of love is your love for me. That what comes with that debt is not a fear of the future, but a confident expectation and hope. I want to thank you that what comes with this debt of love, Lord, is a sense of well-being and peace because, God, ultimately you are still in control. So, God, use us, quicken our hearts this morning, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.